Open your Bibles to Mark chapter 7, Mark's 7th chapter. I've entitled the sermon this morning, Eating with the Dogs, and I've already had questions about that from, a, from some of our students. Um, I hope it will make sense to you more as we get into it. This is really about eating with dogs, and I trust you'll understand that as we get into it. Follow along as I read this text that we'll look at together and consider verses 24 through 30. Jesus got up and went away from there to the region of Tyre. And when he had entered a house, he wanted no one to know of it. Yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit immediately came and fell at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician race. And she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered and said to him, yes, Lord, but even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumbs. He said to her, because of this answer, go. The demon has gone out of your daughter. And going back to her home, she found the child lying on the bed, the demon having left. Wow. As you know, this past week, we hosted a missionary conference here on Mission Road in our church. Feedback I've received from it has been more than encouraging. It's been motivating. At our elders meeting on Friday morning, we spent quite a while talking about how we could steward that momentum that the Lord has stirred up in us to think more deliberately and carefully about missions and missionaries. It's definitely a response to Romans 15 that says, where Paul says, I want to come to Rome so that I can be refreshed before I go on to my next missionary journey. We want to be that kind of church and we're deeply considering how we can do that. Your ideas are welcome. Please talk about that amongst yourself and care groups. Let's think about how we can be more, more uh, obedient and more steward, better stewards of that. But as I reflected personally on how to keep God's heart for global evangelization, a fresh priority for myself and a fresh priority for our church I was amazed again at the providence of God in the passage we're studying. Now, at first glance, you might not realize this, but this is one of the most significant missionary passages in all of Scripture. It is purely about the outreach of the gospel to all peoples. It's a gospel outreach text. It's a witnessing text. It is a missions text. When we gathered together on Wednesday night, I read the shortest psalm in the Bible, Psalm 117. And if you remember, for those of you who aren't here, let me just remind us, Psalm 117 has a unique feature. It is the exact center point of Scripture. 
If you were to do all the math of all the verses and you'd find the exact center of the Bible, it's Psalm 117, the shortest chapter in the Bible, the shortest Psalm in the Bible. And it is a Psalm completely focused on missions. Let me read that for you. Psalm 117, praise the Lord, all nations. Laud him, all peoples. For his loving kindness is great toward us and the truth of the Lord is everlasting. Praise the Lord. The motivation of the character of God, the heart of God is fueled into the call to the nations to give him praise and glory. And that's everyone. Remember, this is the Jewish Psalter, the Jewish hymn book calling all the nations all around the world, not just the Jews, calling all peoples and all nations to stop and give praise and glory to God. It's exemplary for us that the psalmist exhorts and invites the nations to reflect on God's character, God's acts, and respond appropriately by giving him worship. That's missions. Here's who God is. Respond to him in worship and obedience. That's missions. In the words of Peter, is proclaiming the excellencies of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. It's telling the great things about God. And anytime you talk about the great things about God, you cannot help but find your way to the gospel truth and the gospel narrative. Missions involves taking the gospel, the good news, to people who need it. And sometimes that involves taking the gospel to people who need it because the people who have heard it have rejected it. And we find that in our text today. It's the heart of the text this morning that we're looking at in Mark. Let me give you a little rewind, a little context. Jesus has landed in Gentile territory on the southwest portion of the Lake of Galilee. He gets off of the, the boat into uh, the, immediately into a crowd. How he got there was interesting because across the lake, he had just fed about 20,000 people with a little boy's lunch. The disciples, he sends ahead, he goes to pray. They get out into a gale of force wind that's driving them off course and they're making no progress. And Jesus comes to them, not in a boat, not by escort. He walks to them on top of the lake, gets in the boat, the storm immediately ceases, the winds stop and they open their eyes. It's clear and they're at the other side, another miracle. Off the boat, he's met by a, a cohort, a contingent sent up from 100 miles south from Jerusalem who are wanting to trap this, this Jesus, this miracle worker in some sort of theological nuance in which they could point to him and say, see, he's not of our ilk. He's not righteous. He's not the prophet. He's not even a prophet. They confront him about externalism and the disciples and him not washing their hands in a ceremonial way and he turns the whole tide by saying, no, no, it's not about what's outside, it's the heart. That's the residence of evil and from it flow all the issues of life and it's polluted and sinful and needs cleansing, not from the outside in, from, from the inside out. He then talks to his disciples about what that means specifically to address the heart and not the ex, uh, external. And then we find ourselves in verse 24. He got up and went away. It's a little bit of an understatement because he goes all the way to the coast of the Mediterranean. Let's unpack this narrative together and find a very weary savior who is unwilling to let his own comfort dissuade him from the mission he has 
for these sweet and precious and wicked people who need him. I'll explain that in a moment. Let's unpack this by finding two divine maxims for gospel outreach. Mark could not be clearer. Two divine maxims for gospel outreach. Mark, as you know, is writing to a predominantly Gentile audience. Um, there's more explanation about Jewish customs in Mark than, than the other three gospels. And in this, this makes perfect sense that Mark shows this really sweet encounter with this woman to reveal the heart of God through his son for the missions outreach of the good news of the gospel to, to all people. Two divine maxims for gospel outreach. The first is in verses 24 to 28. There is a divine order for gospel outreach. There is a divine order for the gospel to go out to the nations. Gospel outreach. Specifically, Jews, then Gentiles. Jews, then Gentiles. Verse 24. Jesus, Jesus got up from this time uh, on the shoreline of the lake and went away from there to the region of Tyre. Stop right there. Tyre was an interesting city. It was a, on the coast. Um, worshipped um, Dagon and uh, the fish god. Was very, very much about pagan worship, pagan rituals. He moves from the coast of the lake over to the coastal area of the Mediterranean. It's modern day Lebanon if you want a marker in your mind. This is as deep as he could go into Gentile territory without getting wet. He is as far from the safe confines of Jewish occupied uh, Galilee than he could be. Literally to take one more step away from there would to be literally in the Sea of Galilee. The Mediterranean Sea, rather. James Edwards comments, from a socio-religious perspective, Jesus' visit to Tyre universalizes the concept of Messiah in terms of geography, ethnicity, gender, and religion in a way entirely unprecedented in Judaism, end quote. In other words, Jesus is breaking all of the external rules that the Pharisees had just confronted him that he wasn't keeping and even visiting Tyre. He gets there and he, he goes into a house. Now, sometimes the scriptures give us great detail that we can uh, unpack and sometimes we, we can only speculate and we need to speculate in a sanctified way and we need to speculate very carefully. Mark doesn't tell us why he goes into a house except for this. He wanted no one to know of it, yet he could not escape notice. Didn't want anyone to know, everyone knew. Why did he want to escape into a house? We, we can speculate. He had just been accosted by these religious leaders. Uh, the crowds had, had been swarming him, literally physically bumping into him and crowding him. He goes as far away from Judaism as he can and it's, there's no doubt that when he crossed over into the Syrophoenician, we'll talk about that in a moment, uh, uh, region, that the Jewish crowds must have stopped at the border. His reputation hadn't stopped at the border though. He wanted no one to know of it, likely to rest, maybe to teach his disciples, maybe to debrief on what had happened over by the lake. We don't know, but we know he wanted to be by himself with his men. It didn't work out. Ministry, listen, ministry to the Lord was never an inconvenience to him. 
He didn't value rest above ministry. And I say that to just remind us that I think that that people who die, Christians who die faithfully, they die tired. They die worn out in a good way. They die with spiritual patina. They've been well used and well cared for. Verse 25, but after hearing of him, interesting, stop right there. This is as far away from the Jewish line as he could be without going into the sea. And the reputation had already preceded him. They heard there's a miracle worker, a Jewish miracle worker over in Galilee. He's raising the dead. He's curing leprosy. He's healing the sick. He's casting out demons. That's important. After hearing of him, remember these crowds won't let him even in Gentile territory, and get a moment's rest. A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. Mark will tell us in a minute, that's a demon. Immediately, Mark's favorite word, came and fell at his feet. For a Gentile woman to fall at the feet of a Jewish rabbi broke every religious and social norm in the culture. And yes, she did. She was desperate. But she was also confident that Jesus could do for her what she most deeply desired. Now, just a footnote here. A woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit. This is, this is troubling to me. This is very disturbing. You know, in the life of politics, politics we often hear, don't, mess with a politician's children, right? Children are off limits. Not to the devil. An unclean spirit, a demon has invaded this little girl. The Greek word indicates a young girl, probably anywhere from eight to 12. The devil and his demons have no compassion. They don't play by fair rules. They don't play hands off with women. They don't play hands off with little children. Stephen had invaded this little girl's life. We don't know the details of whether it was a physical ailment or fits, but she was obviously under the control of an external force that was evil and demonic. And then we find this mother's maternal love so refreshing. It moves her to come to Jesus, to break the, the social norms, to break the religious norms. This is a Gentile woman coming to a Jew for help. Maybe this Jewish miracle worker she's heard of could help her little girl. And she placed all, not some, all of her hope in him. Now, let's back up sociologically for a moment. Had she gone and Jesus had dismissed her, she would have then been pariah in Tyre. You, you were the one who struck out with the Jewish miracle worker. Didn't matter. She wanted after him. Now Mark tells us something very significant that we already know just by the territory and the movement of Jesus from Galilee to Tyre over on the coast of the Mediterranean. He tells us what we already know, but he tells us this because this is written for a Gentile audience, which is going to offer us as non-Jews enormous hope. As if we didn't know it, he states the obvious. Now the woman 
was a Gentile. And if that's not enough, she was of the Syro-Phoenician race. Syro from Syria, the area of Syria, governed by pagan gods. Phoenician, you remember Dagon and the Phoenicians who um, uh, uh, was the fish god, lost his head. Word Phoenician should grab the attention of any Bible student. We meet them all throughout the Old Testament. They were a coastal culture, violently opposed Israel, hated the God of Israel. Likely the God who Goliath called upon when he was fighting David. In Matthew's account of this narrative, he adds that this woman was a descendant of the Canaanites, even stacking one more adjective of how far outside of the commonwealth of God's grace to Israel she was. Now, we need to do a little homework here to rightly understand the nuances of the Savior's conversation with this lady. Uh, Why is the Jewish Messiah ministering on the Mediterranean coast deep in Gentile territory? Mark wants us to ask that question. It's been Jewish, Jewish, Jewish. He went down and cast out a demon on the, on the south, um, eastern side of the lake, and then Jewish, 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 and now he's over in the Gentile territory. Why is this? The Jews had long misunderstood the plan of God. To this day, I think they still miss the focus of God through the choosing of the nation of Israel and the Jews and Abraham himself. To understand this, would you take your Bibles and turn over to Genesis chapter 12. Genesis 12, very important text. I want you to see two texts that should have had a greater effect on the Jewish understanding of their surrounding nations than than they did. You know, this is the conversation that God has with Abraham. Genesis 12, verse one. Now the Lord said to Abram, go forth from your country and from your relatives, from your father's house to the land which I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. There's Judaism begun right there. The Jewish nation begins right there. And I will bless you and make your name great. And so you shall be called a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you. And the ones who curse you, I will curse. Here it is. And in you all, all, sounds like Psalm 117, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Turn over to chapter 17. Chapter 17. Verse 1. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, I mean, that's just a, that's a showstopper right there. <laughs> he was 99 years old. The Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. You want a life verse? There's a good one. I will establish my covenant, my promise. My contract between me and you, I will greatly, I will multiply you exceedingly. Abraham fell on his face and God talked with him saying, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. 
Not just the Jewish nation. This is speaking of the gospel outreach of the Abrahamic covenant fulfilled in Jesus Christ. No longer shall your name be called Abram. He's been called Abram for almost 100 years. He's gonna get a name chase pretty late in life. You'll be the father of a multitude of nations. I'll change your name. You should be called Abraham for I will make you the father of, here it is again, a multitude of nations. I have made you exceedingly fruitful. I will make nations, plural, of you. Kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout your generations for an everlasting covenant to be your God and to your descendants after you. We have to go to verse eight. I will give to you and your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession and I will be their God. One of the reasons that we believe in a future for Israel is right in this verse, a future for a saved, redeemed Israel. If God didn't mean that to the Jews, why would we expect he will keep his promise to those who've been elected by the good news of the gospel? The point of Genesis 12 and Genesis 17 is to say this. God never intended for his relationship with the Jews to be possessed and hidden away from the nations. In fact, they were to be loudspeakers to the nations to tell of the good news of God. Psalm 119, verse 60, 68, that God is good, that he does good, that he's worthy to be praised. Psalm 117, that all the nations should know what he's like and respond in according worship. In other words, the Abrahamic covenant is thoroughly evangelistic. It's not exclusive. By the time we find the Jews in Jesus' time, they had taken the promises. Remember Romans 2? They had taken the promises of God, the ordinances of God, the covenant of God, the word of God, held it to themselves and says, this is ours and no one else's. And in Romans chapter two, Paul says, that is your problem. It was never intended to possess. It was intended to possess and to share. And that's what we find right here. Can we just stop for a moment? If you're... Just, just a quick show of hands. How many of you have any Jewish heritage in your, in your uh, several of you? Great, praise God for you. Praise God for you. But for those of us who don't, we are taking a bath in God's grace in this passage. We should feel like the uninvited guests who showed up at a party and were given seats of honor. Long before Jesus, excuse me, long after Jesus says this, Paul says in Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, both in evangelism and showing the paradigm of Jesus' ministry. He began with the Jews. We've seen him in the Jews for a better part of two years in Mark. Now he's over deep in the Gentile territory taking the good news to non-Jews. And then the text says, and she kept asking him to cast the demon out of her daughter. If I were to make a colloquial uh, translation of this, this word she kept asking in the tense of the verb, it would probably translate something closer to she kept irritating him. She wouldn't stop asking. She was like a fly that you're trying to swat away that keeps coming back. That was her. 
She wouldn't walk away. She was persistent because of her love for her daughter and her confidence in Jesus. The New Testament, the New American Standard rather, captures it well when it says, she kept asking. Persistent. You know, if, if you ever ask the Lord something in prayer and he doesn't answer, I don't think he expects us to walk away and say, well, I tried to remain vigilant in prayer because that keeps us close to him and close to his purposes and close in our confidence that he alone can satisfy our longings and our desires and our needs. In verse 27, she responds, in a way, and I don't want to spend, I don't want to give this any dignity. She responds in a way that modern feminists have camped on. And here's what they say. Jesus is harsh and he hates women and he calls this poor woman a dog. And he does. And you and me too. But it might not be exactly as you think. Verse 27. He was saying to her, she's persistent. She keeps asking, she keeps asking. She keeps asking. And finally he responds, let the children be satisfied first. For it is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. You almost want to insert the word undaunted between verse 27 and 28. She answered and said to him, yes, Lord. Hang on. I believe what you're saying, but hang on. Yes, Lord. Children are fed first, but even the dogs who you referenced under the table feed on the children's crumbs. What they drop in is left over. What is this about? Let's talk for a minute about dogs. Most dogs in the Bible were not domesticated animals. They were pack animals. They weren't pets. They were scavengers. They were nuisances. Dogs are described in the Old Testament with derision, waking people who were trying to sleep at nights, Psalm 59.6 and verses 14 to 15. They're depicted as having voracious appetites in Isaiah 56.11. They were hated by Israelites. Luke talks about the dogs licking Lazarus's sores in Luke 16, treating him like he was already dead. But dogs were not always scorned. Job 31 says, 30 verse one rather, says that a dog's job was to tend the flocks and protect them against predators. Sometimes they were looked at with scorn and derision, sometimes exonerated and honored. So what does Jesus mean here when he references children and dogs? Let me just make it really simple. Mark is talking to a Gentile audience. Children is a clear reference to the Jews. That's what she understood it to be to whom Jesus came to offer salvation, the Jews first. And the dogs are the Gentiles. Now, before you say, hang on, Jesus, what's your beef? Why are you calling me a dog? The word used here for dog is not the normal word. It's a diminutive. It's a smaller word for dog. We, all, we also know that the, these are not just scavengers out in the street. These are pets. How do we know they're pets? They're inside the house. When crumbs drop off the what? Table. The dogs are there, diminutive, small pet dogs come and eat the crumbs. 
Oh, Jesus is using the word dogs metaphorically and symbolically that as Gentiles, we are outside the commonwealth of God's grace in Israel. But he's also saying, these dogs are pets sitting at the table. Now, I'm not gonna ask for a show of hands for how many of you have dogs who have found their way to your table when you're eating and just expect that you're either gonna drop some crumbs or offer them a little offering. It's the same thing that's being pictured here. This is not a, duress, a, 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 a term of, of, of derision. This is, this is a term of just simple leftovers. This, the children eat first and whatever they drop, and if your children were like mine, they drop a lot around the table. The dogs are there to happily help you clean up. Children were the Jews. The dogs were the Gentiles. The point here is that the Jews were deserving of the first offer of the gospel and the original meal because he is and was the Jewish Messiah. But as we heard, learned from the Abrahamic covenant, the Jewish plan of salvation was never intended to rest alone with the Jews. They were supposed to be evangelists, bringing in proselytes to see their God and to worship him rightly. Now, those of us who are Gentile, which is the large majority, largest majority in the room, uh, this should make us pause. This should make us pause. Jesus intentionally went to Tyre to show you and me to have this recorded in Mark so that we could here in 2019 study this passage and remember that we were uninvited guests by the religious community but invited by the Abrahamic covenant revealed in the good news of the Messiah incarnate and the gospel plan. It's incredible. Let's talk with Marty Wolf. Uh, Marty Zide, I know Marty Wolf, who's also a Jewish evangelist too. Marty Zide this last week, and I was so encouraged to remember we live in a largely uh, Jewish uh, neighborhood. To have a heart for the ones who are the chosen people. We know from Romans chapter 11 that one day the natural branch, the Jews, that was cut off will be grafted back into the trunk of the tree, which I think is the Abrahamic covenant. The Gentiles, the unnatural branch grafted in, then the, the natural branch, which is the Jews, will be believing Jews, will be grafted back in there. If we could be a part of seeing that redeemed remnant of God's original promised people come to faith. What a joy. If you have a Jew, don't be discouraged, be encouraged. Build a relationship with them. And we'll talk more about that. I hope even some training in the future. We are truly the dogs who eat with the children as Gentiles. And instead of feeling like someone called you a name, you should feel like someone invited you to the table. Praise God, we get what drops off the table because it's equally as spiritually satisfying as what was on the table. To the Jew first, also to the Gentiles, and praise God, he opened it up to us. Can you imagine, by the way, the way uh, how the disciples must have felt over entire? I don't know if you've ever been in a place where you just feel like I, I don't belong here. Uh, I was, the worst I ever remember was I was, it was the late 80s and um, Perestroika was fresh 
and I went over to do a conference in Russia. And back then, the international terminal was about 15-minute taxi drive over to the domestic terminal. And I had driven from, uh, uh, I'd flown into the, from Krasnoyarsk to um, um, the domestic and had to get over to the international terminal. I walked outside and saw a taxi. I knew what I had to do, and I, I asked for a ride over, and he put my bags in the trunk. We drove the, the 12, 15 minutes over to the international terminal. I got out. I paid him the fare that was listed in rubles on the, on the meter, and he asked me for more money in English, and I said, I, I don't have any. That was what, that's all the rubles I had. And he began talking to me in Russian. I said, I, I don't understand Russian, but you understand English. And he says, no English, no English. And it became clear to me that a crowd was forming around. He had my passport, all of my luggage in his trunk, and was about to drive off. I had no phone number. I had no one to contact. I felt sick at my stomach. And this was the depth of my prayer life. Lord, help. Well, finally, a man came up. I would not doubt it when I get to heaven if I meet this man and he was an angel. And he entered right in between us and began talking very sternly in Russian to this gentleman, this taxi driver. He opened up, gave me my, my, uh, my luggage, and I, I picked it up, turned around, and I, I never saw him again. It was gone. But the feeling of being in a place that I didn't belong, in a dangerous place where people didn't like me and wanted to take advantage of me. Imagine the disciples standing really close to Jesus as they get close to Tyre. You know, they, this is an uncomfortable place, not for Jesus. He wanted to be with the people who needed him most, and so should we. By the way, the Moscow airport is excellent now. I love flying in there. There's a second divine maxim for gospel outreach. Not only the order from Jews to Gentiles, but secondly, there's a divinely accepted response to the gospel outreach, and that's irresistible faith. A divinely accepted, you can even say acceptable, response to the gospel outreach, to gospel outreach, namely irresistible faith. So Jesus gives this little parable. This is for the children and not for the dogs. And the woman says, hang on, I'm gonna help you with your illustration and says that even the dogs will eat what drops off the table. What is Jesus gonna say? You got me? You're bad? Is he gonna debate her like he did the Pharisees? No, 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 look at this. And he said to her, because of this answer, go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. He didn't perceive her as correcting him. He perceived her as seeking him. Lord, I know you have grace. I know you have grace. Master Jesus, I know you have grace for your people. But is there any that would drop off the table for a woman like me? that would touch my daughter, that would heal, that would bring salvation to my eyes. Jesus says, because of your answer, because of this answer, he recognized her irresistible faith. I call it irresistible because she kept going back, kept going back, kept going back. Her faith could not be resisted. She recognizes Jesus' power, his authority. She recognizes his compassion. She saw him for who he truly was quite differently than the 
Pharisees who stood on the shore of the lake not long before this. And then the end is striking. Go, the demon has gone out of your daughter. This is a long distance miracle. We're gonna see real soon where Jesus is going to have a very hands-on with his own saliva miracle, very much physical contact, not this one. He's God. And he can say about a girl, maybe not even knowing where she is, his divine awareness of where she was, the demon who was there, he could make it right in an instant. Verse 30, going back to her home, what does she find? You can see her. Can you imagine her running back to her house? Wondering if it happened, hoping that it happened, confident that it happened. She busts open the door and there's a girl lying on the bed and the demon had left. Wow, what a savior. What he promised came to pass. Jesus has never uttered a promise that does not come to reality. She walks in the room. Her girl is well. Now back up for a second and think about this story in context. A Syrophoenician woman who was a Gentile. Zero external qualifications according to the law. Zero, none. The Pharisees had just said, your, your disciples don't do ceremonially, ceremonial hand washing. Therefore, they're not acceptable to God. My suspicion is she didn't even know what this hand washing would have been. No ability, no desire, no understanding of obeying external rituals. Nothing in her, nothing about her appeared to make her acceptable to God in the, in the Jewish mindset. But she had faith. She believed in who Jesus was and what Jesus could do and persisted in that faith to the point that she would not be denied her prayer. She also believed that the Jewish Messiah had room for Gentiles in his kingdom. Can we just, just take a Gentile moment here and, and stop and remember that we should be incredibly grateful that we have been, Romans 11, grafted into the Abrahamic covenant by faith in the seed of Abraham, the Lord Jesus. What a God. Paul says to the Romans, we didn't have access to the commonwealth of Israel. We didn't have access to the law. We didn't have access to the grace of God or the covenants or the prophets or the priesthood. We didn't have access to temple worship. And yet God, in a miraculous way to each one of us in a, in a, in a hundred different ways, came and said, you're invited to eat the food from the table. And there will be one day in that great marriage supper of the Lamb where we will not be dogs under the table be sitting at the feast with him alongside our Jewish brothers and sisters. She had faith, and so can we and should we. Her faith made her acceptable to God, not ceremonial cleansings, not externalism. It was her faith. 
In contrast to the Pharisees, this story teaches us that faith produces obedience to God himself, not man-made rules that are not in Scripture, superstitious things. As non-Jews, this passage ought to help us sense a new and fresh wonder at our salvation. Even though not all, not all, but most Jews then and now don't see their mission in the Abrahamic covenant as extending to all nations, which is us, God brought the gospel to you. If you're a believer, he brought it to you, likely outside from the commonwealth of a Jew. Wow, what a God. It's all grace. Any of us could sit long enough and see sin that would not be acceptable to God, attractive to God, presentable to God, would repulse God from us, all of us. In mind or deed, in word and action, we have alienated ourselves from God. But in the good news of Jesus coming, he forgives that sin. He, he doesn't dissolve it and make it go away. He actually pays for it by taking on the wrath of God, which is deserved on our sin. And he takes it on himself. And though he died for our sins in our place, he rose from the dead by the power of the Spirit, the approval of the Father, and the presentation to the nations as the Son of God. I hope that you've found your way to Him. I hope you understand the gift of God in offering the plan of salvation to those of us who are outside of the advantage of being Jews. If you haven't, this is a good day to come to the Messiah and to come to the Savior.